church. Young people, you are dismissed. Um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders on staff here. And uh, we are going to look at God's word now. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 20. We've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. And we find ourselves in the last verses of Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34 this morning. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. This is God's word. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Would you again just bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask now for the aid of your Spirit as we look at your Word. Would you speak to us? Would you show us Jesus? Would you show us our need for Him and the mercy He has for us this, in these moments, this morning? God, may your Word take root in our hearts and lives and bring forth fruit for your honor and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Since 1982, so 40 years now, teams in the National Football League have gathered uh, every year for what is now known as the NFL Scouting Combine. It's for prospective players, players out of college and other players to come. It's a multi- day event in which these teams come and and they do tests and interviews of these players to see which players fit the mold of an NFL star. Uh, the players, they participate in, in uh, physical challenges. They do a 40-yard dash, a vertical jump, uh, see how many times they can bench press a certain weight, a broad jump. So they're testing their physical abilities, but they're also testing their, their particular skills at a certain position. They're testing, uh, they do psychological assessments and intellectual assessments. Uh, they even do medical tests. They want to make sure that these guys are good to go. But they are looking for a guy with very specific characteristics. If, if you're one of the offensive linemen, one of those big guys that looks like Brandon Swain, right? They're looking for a certain arm length in those guys, or they don't want them. A defensive end, they want a certain ankle flexion, or they, they don't want them. Uh, it, wide receivers, they have to be able to cover 40 yards in no time, or they're not really going to be interested. No matter how good a player was in college, or, or perhaps even how underwhelming they were in college, these scouts have a chart that say, this is what a star looks like. These are the boxes that get checked off so we know they might be a star. 
They, they have an archetype, a, a model in mind to which they want these young men to conform. Or they're not interested. There, there's a model, an archetype they seek. And I wonder if we, we think about the Christian life, what does the prototypical Christian look like? What's the mold for a Christian? Some of us might be inclined to think that the model of a, of a Christian, surely somebody who's mastered the Scriptures and have great theological knowledge. Maybe somebody like R.C. Sproul. Others say, no, no, that's great, but, um, you know, somebody like William Wilberforce, who, who spent his life trying to end the slave trade and bring about justice. Somebody who seeks justice and, and loves others. Surely that's the model. That's what a disciple looks like. And others, other people say, yeah, that, that's wonderful too, but... Perhaps it's somebody more like William Carey, who upended his life, who, who gave everything to go across to the world so that others could know the name of Jesus. So what is the model of the Christian life? What, what, is, what does the prototypical Christian look like? What are the distinguishing characteristics of a disciple? One of my favorite um, preachers, he's in the UK, he says, this passage we're looking at describes a model Christian, an archetype of a disciple. So I want to look at Matthew 20, 29 through 34, because I think it does give us a vivid picture held up for us of God's people. So let's look at it. Our, our passage begins as Jesus, his disciples, and, and a crowd of some size, seems like a big crowd, they are leaving the city of Jericho and heading, it's about a day's journey to Jerusalem. And as this mob is beginning their journey, Matthew tells us there are two guys sitting by the roadside. And these aren't just any two guys. These are two blind men. It's likely that in this day, two blind men sitting by the roadside, they're there because they are beggars, eking out their existence based on uh, you know, the graciousness of passerbyers, the charity of passerbyers. And though they can't see, they are in tune with everything that is happening on that road where they are sitting. Uh, though they are blind, they see Jesus. Though they are perhaps some of the least likely to get it, these two blind men they actually understand who Jesus is. They grasp Jesus' identity. Look at verse 30 with me, if you would. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, in, in calling him and addressing him as Lord and Son of David, what they're doing is they, they understand his dignity and his authority. Son of David was a, a name or a, a title used for the Jewish Messiah, the expected Messiah that they were all waiting for, that they were all hoping and praying would come. 
He would be the great deliverer who would bring salvation and blessing for God's people. And these two blind men, they can't see anything. They see that Jesus is this Messiah for God's people. And as such, he's the one who fulfills all the Old Testament expectations which God had promised. I don't know if you're familiar with it, so I just want to I want to uh, flip back to the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel, God made a covenant with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 and following. This is what it says. The Lord says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he's talking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, son of David. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, what the Lord is telling David is that there's going to be a son, a son of David who would rule forever, who would bring blessing to God's people. See, these two blind men have some understanding that Jesus is the divine king who will rule forever. Again, get the irony. They're blind, but they perceive. They can't see, but they actually are seeing what no one else is seeing in the moment. And this this idea of the son of David as Jesus' identity is what Matthew has been communicating since the very beginning of his gospel. I know it's a, a verse we often read by, but remember the first verse of the gospel of Matthew. It, it reads like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew sees this as as central to who Jesus is. And do you remember the words of the wise men when they were coming and seeking the baby? In verse 2 of chapter 2, the wise men say, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? The son of David. Yet so many people, the religious leaders, and even those who were following Jesus in this mob and this throng of people, they didn't grasp this. What so many others had missed, these blind men understood. And friend, I think that's uh, the first characteristic of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who understands Jesus' identity. Someone who grasps Jesus' identity. Jesus is not peripheral in the Christian life. Christianity is not fundamentally an ethical framework which happens to star this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. No, no, no. It is fundamentally, Christianity is fundamentally about God revealed 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, have we come to grips with Jesus' identity? Have you understood what He's revealed about Himself? And have you embraced that? Again, many in Jesus' day, they missed it. They, they misunderstood it. But these blind men, they got it. Many in Jesus' day, as in our own, they viewed Jesus as a social revolutionary, a political deliverer. But Jesus isn't somebody who came to merely um, give you a better, richer, more fruitful earthly existence. He didn't come to make you a better spouse. He didn't come to make you a better parent. He didn't come to make you a better citizen or to make our country a more just society. Those things are wonderful. Please hear me. May God grant them to all of us. But that's not why Jesus came. Christianity is not a system that that merely views Jesus as a teacher or a prophet. Again, He is God's final word. But He is the great King. The Son of David. Who came to rescue His enslaved people. He came to rescue and deliver a helpless people who sit by the roadside and beg. His people were enslaved, but in His life, in His death on the cross, in His burial, and in His resurrection, He's conquered our enemies. He's conquered sin and death. And He's liberated those who place their hope and their trust in Him. He's subdued our foes and He saved us from death. Jesus Christ is the authoritative King who liberates us from bondage and corruption. So a Christian is one who understands, grasps Jesus' identity. But let's notice what this grasp, this understanding of, of Jesus' identity led these men to do. Look again at verse 30 with me. It says, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. They called out to this authoritative king for mercy. These men, they realized their utter helplessness. They're going to spend every day for the rest of their lives by that roadside begging, eking out an existence, unless this king intervenes. Unless this king, on whom they have zero claim, no right to expect anything, unless he has mercy. And so that's what they do. Lord, have mercy. Now, we, we see that some people in this mob of, of, of followers, they're annoyed by this. As we'll see next week when we get into chapter 21, the crowd is headed to Jerusalem. And their plan is, they're going to crown Jesus their earthly king. Right? And so the people in this crowd, they see these two blind men as nothing more than a nuisance, as nothing more than a roadblock, a pothole, if you will, in the, in, in the timeline of coronating Jesus as king of Israel. 
and they don't want their Messiah to be troubled by such, a, by such insignificant people, by these little problems yelling by the roadside. Caring for these handicapped men would only distract Jesus from, from triumphing and, and unveiling himself from his mission. So verse 31 says, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. These people aren't worth your time, Jesus. We've seen that. Over the past couple chapters, people, they're deemed insignificant. Right? And how do the men respond? Whoop, they're put in their place. No, no, no. They'll get it. But they cried out all the more. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us. They would not be turned away. They knew there was no other hope for their condition. These men desperately seek the mercy of Jesus. And and look at the fruit of, of their desperation in verses 32 and 33. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't want us to blow by this question. Because if you were listening last week, you recall that this is the very question that Jesus asked James and John. That Jesus asked James and John's mother. Look at verse, I believe it's verse 21 with me. Yes, and he said to her, uh, verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left your kingdom. Notice the difference in her request. Her request is all about ambition. Her request is all about greatness and glory. They wanted titles and greatness. And these blind men, all they want is mercy. They asked Jesus, for their sight in verse 33. Lord, let our eyes be opened. They wanted to be made whole again. Again, friend, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who desperately understands their need for and seeks the mercy of Jesus. A Christian is one who desperately seeks Christ's mercies. Not somebody striving for abundance in this life or greatness. We desperately seek His mercy knowing our fallen state. We urgently seek His mercy knowing that our lives have been fractured by sin. We must have Christ because there is no other hope. We know there is no hope in our own efforts. We just sang about that. Brandon highlighted that in our, in our call to confession. Nothing in our hands we bring. 
We know there's no hope, no prospect for us in financial security. There's no fulfillment in relationships. A Christian is one who understands they must have Christ or they have nothing. A Christian is one who desperately seeks Christ's mercy. And verse 34 tells us this. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. See, Jesus didn't see these men as insignificant. He stopped his journey. He showed compassion. Jesus doesn't turn away from those who need His mercy. As Paul tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He will not turn away the loneliness. Simply come to Him looking for mercy. Christian is one who desperately seeks Christ's mercy because they are convinced of Christ's mercy. Jesus, in pity, gave them their sight. Friend, have you sought the Lord for His mercy? Or perhaps you foolishly believe that life is in your control. That you can kind of shape it how you want so you don't really need mercy. Do you desperately, do you know your, your desperate need for the Lord's mercy? Or do you think, no, I, I can manage my sin. I can, I can clean up around the edges. I can, I can placate God's wrath. Do you find yourself calling out for God's mercy or, or in, in overwhelming um, appreciation, praising His mercy, His undeserved favor? Or do we instead only offer ambitious, entitled prayers seeking prosperity, vocational success? This is the mark of a Christian. A Christian is one who desperately seeks Christ's mercy. And look what the men did after calling out and after having receiving the mercy of Christ. Look at that last phrase in verse 34. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. And followed Him. A Christian is one who follows Christ. Right? Having understood Jesus' identity, and having received His mercy, these men follow Jesus. That's what a Christian does. Having understood His mercy and uh, having received it, understanding who it is that's giving it, we follow Him. But let's not misunderstand. Following Jesus doesn't mean some sort of radical existence. Like um, you, uh, you know, Quitting your job, selling your house, leaving your family, and, and moving across the world to, to t- sell somebody in some far-flung place about Jesus. That's not necessarily what it means to follow Jesus. I pray that God raises up some of you as, as pastors and as missionaries that will go to the far ends of the earth and proclaim Jesus as the Son of David, the true and rightful King. I pray that happens. 
But following Jesus simply means living faithfully in the circumstances in which He's placed us right now. Taking your job seriously and honoring your employer with your time and with your talents. Loving and leading your family. Serving them. Whether it be in the monotony of life or the craziness and and chaos of life. Walking in step with the Spirit as we make entertainment decisions and, and financial decisions. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means loving and caring for Christ's people around you more than yourself. And I think we could even be more specific. Christians follow Jesus on the road of suffering. The, the very next sentence, our, our verse 34 closes with, and followed Him. The very next sentence, though it's, it's divided by a chapter number, right? The very next sentence is this, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. See, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem not to be crowned king, not to be coronated, but to be hung on a cross, to be crucified. Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to suffer. And these men followed Him on the road of suffering. See, Christians follow Jesus wherever He leads. Jesus promised that those who follow Him would drink the cup of suffering. It's what He told James and John in the last passage we looked at. It's what He says in in Matthew 16. He says, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Don't, Don't get this confused though. One writer clarifies it. Death to self is not a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus so much as it is a continuing characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus. In other words, we follow the One who has already taken hold of us. Jesus does not say, if you follow Me, I'll have mercy on you. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't say, if you follow Me, if you walk in My steps, then I'll love you. No. That's not what He says. He says, I will have mercy on you. And He saves us. And then, in response to who He is and what He's done, we follow Him. We pour out our lives. We renounce our rights our desires, our decisions, our aspirations, because we have been rescued. We were helpless beggars on the roadside, but He lifted us up and He gave us sight. Brother and sister, I wonder if our life is marked by a preoccupation with, with Jesus, with the life of Jesus. Are our lives marked daily? Perhaps, are, are they our lives marked moment by moment with a reflection on how Christ would have us respond to His mercy. Whether it be with our calendars or with our gifts and talents. Do our daily lives reflect uh, a desire to honor Him 
with our finances, with our, with our sexuality. Does following characterize us as recipients of his mercy? Well, a Christian is one who follows Jesus. Understanding Jesus' identity compels us, those who are helpless, it compels us to desperately seek his mercy and follow him. Look to Jesus. Seek His mercy. And joyfully and gladly follow Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We need it. Our understanding is distorted. We place ourselves at the center of the universe. We, we crown ourselves. We become preoccupied with ourselves. And we see no need for you. And so we thank you for this passage this morning in which you so clearly show us the authority and the dignity of Jesus in our great need. We pray that even now you would work in the hearts, our hearts, the hearts of men and women in this room, that we might see and feel and sense and know our desperate need for your mercy. We must have you or we have nothing. Give new life to some that they might seek you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our feet and our hands that we might follow you with joy, with gladness, with endurance. May we honor you for all that you are, for all that you've done for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.